This podcast is supported by VEPLA, Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. Welcome to PX61 today. I'm Jess Noonan and as always, I'm joined by my colleague, Peter Jewell. Hello, Jess. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by our good friend, Mark Marsden from the Victorian Planning Reports, also known as VPRs, who is also a wonderful sponsor of the podcast. Mark has 30 years experience in planning. He's worked at senior levels for a number of councils and for the Municipal Association Victoria, and was also a senior panel member at Planning Panels Victoria for over six years. Mark currently works part-time at Wyndham City Council and has his own company, Transact Planning. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks for having me, uh, Jess and Peter. Now, Mark, how did you and why did you get into planning all those years ago? Yeah, all those years ago. Well, thanks for reminding me. Uh, (laughs) Well, I came into planning in a roundabout sort of way. Um, I was doing an arts course at La Trobe University and uh, my objective at that time was to become a teacher. Um, But as time went on, I was doing a number of subjects that were relevant to planning, Um, urban sociology, uh, urban economics, uh, those sorts of courses and, and legal studies. And um, so it was really through that, um, through that door that I, I got opened up into, uh, into planning. Um, and then subsequent to, to that, I did a graduate diploma uh, at the old FIT, Footscray Institute. Um, so that's how I got into it. I, I guess for, for me, um, planning is, uh, it involves everything. Uh, it involves economic, social, environmental, cultural, legal, operates in a political context. Um, It's a generalist profession. And um, and I'm interested in a lot of issues. And it it just just suited suited, uh, my interests, I guess, my general interests. And so Victorian planning reports, how did that come about? Because that's obviously, um, actually for for those that don't know what it is, it's it's an analysis and a really um, in-depth assessment, I guess, of VCAT and planning panel cases. Yeah. Well, um, when it uh, first started, it was known as um, the Planning Appeal Board's reports, and um, and then the uh, Planning Appeals Board changed its name to AATR. So there's another name change to the publication, Administrative Appeals Tribunal Reports. Um, so when did you start it, Unaventurous? What year was yeah, that? Yeah, well, when I first got in, I was involved in the editorial committee uh, from about uh, the mid-1990s. Um, but uh, I, got, I, I started running it, uh, basically, uh, from about 2004. What year did it start, Mark? It started in 1983. So it's a very peculiar... Uh, it was set up privately, I think, by your father. Was Correct, that, yes. Uh, oh, your father set it up? Yes, he did. Ah, and, fantastic. And it, for listeners who don't know it, it, it looks at all the cases that come out and analyses them for readers, for the readership, and explains trends and has editorials. Yeah, yeah. So I guess the unique part, I mean, there were, there were uh, cases reported in the Victorian law reports from uh, the tribunal or PABR, particularly if they involved significant legal issues, but those cases weren't normally reported until about two years after mm-hmm. the case. So anyway, this publication um, uh, came about, so the reporting of, of the cases was much sooner, like it was within like three or four months. Um, and, it, and the unique feature of the publication was the editorial comment, because in law reports, you don't normally get editorial comment. And the purpose of the editorial comment was, I guess, to um, do a few things, but to perhaps there might have been two similar cases, but two different results. So the editorial might analyse uh, how the how the tribunal uh, got to those different outcomes. When I was starting off in local government, Jess, I know you've never worked in local government, but when I was a local government planner, stat planner, assessing yeah. applications, I used to read this thing religiously when it used to come out quarterly. Mm. And I remember the joy when one of my cases actually appeared in there. Yeah. And I was on the winning side, but it instructed me on what to look for. Mm. So rather than me having to read through all these, 
you know, judgments from the tribunal, or the Planning Appeals Board then, it gave me a summary or, or gave me a head start to that issue. Yeah. And then you could quote that in your council reports. That's right. It, so it, it was transmission it, of ideas and information. Yeah, it, it really helped establish uh, you know, precedents, I guess, um, planning principles, not so much legal principles, even though they were also relevant, but, but planning principles. So, I mean, in those days, there was no Osle, and, and really, unless you were party to the case, mm. that was no, the only way to access tribunal decisions. Well, there was no so, online. So there was, was no online. That's right, there was so no online. There was books. <laughs> Hold on, there was something before online. Wow. Sorry, Jess. <laughs> we, we actually lived, uh, we would come out of our huts and get this paper, this parchment. <laughs> I actually remember when I first started in the industry, which wasn't that long ago in the grand scheme of things, um, we had the little white books, the yeah, little that's, that's reports. What they were, yeah. yeah, and I used to sit there and read them. I found mm. them really fascinating. So, um, so I'm interested, was the, was the purpose of it originally um, more about setting the precedent and understanding the precedent or is it more about making um, those judgments accessible to people? I think it was both. Yeah. Yeah, definitely both. Um, as we were just saying, the cases weren't generally available to mm. everybody. Um, so with this publication, uh, they were. But, and, and there's obviously a lot of decisions, but it reported only, only on the more noteworthy mm. or, or interesting decisions. And through the, uh, the head notes and the editorials, um, it got commentary going in terms of the sorts of uh, decision, decisions that the tribunal was making. A very educational source. Incredible. Yeah. Well, Incredible. It's evolved um, since then. Um, mm. So in... Uh, How do you stay current in this age of the internet? Oh, exactly. <laughs> Establish a website <laughs> and make material available online. So it has, has evolved over the time. And, um, of course, the, you know, one of the main features of the original Little White Books was the republishing of the decision. But with the uh, advent of Osley, um, which is a great initiative, um, so all cases are uploaded and uh, available uh, free, um, there wasn't much point in continuing that publication. Indeed, uh, people were, were voting with their feet and, and had we lost a lot of subscribers um, you know, about the year 2000, which is, I think, the time that Osley started uploading the cases. They seem so, to work on their search function a little bit. Yeah. That's the only, yeah, you know, well, that's, going back to and accessible. And this is where we think we can add value yeah, um, in terms of um, what we provide. So so what uh, VPRs now is, is there's two things, two elements of it. Uh, we've continued with the editorial comment, um, but what, what we have introduced is editorial comment on panel reports. And, um, and as I'm sure you can appreciate, um, panel reports uh, are a very significant contributor to uh, planning decisions. Um, for, for our non-Victorian listeners, yep. can you just explain the two different bodies sure. in 30 seconds? <laughs> yeah. yeah, the panels mainly deal with changes to planning, the planning rules, the planning schemes. They're not a decision-making body. Um, they provide recommendations back to the planning authority or to the minister. The tribunal is a quasi-judicial body and it makes binding decisions on development and use applications. That, that's the fundamental difference between, between the two. So just going back to um, the two features of um, Victoria Planning Reports, editorial current, uh, tribunal decisions, well, and Supreme Court decisions as well, because uh, there is the right of a appeal on a point of law to uh, the Supreme Court, and uh, editorial comment on panel reports. That's one feature. The other feature is the consolidated guides. So um, what we thought was that uh, because there is so much information out there or so many cases, how can you distill that into some sort of comprehensive framework? This is your A to Z, or as I refer to it, the planning bible. Is that the A that's, to Z of planning? That's the one, yeah. <laughs> so we've got two. We've got the Guide to Planning Appeals. Um, and we use the, the you know, little white books to put together um, the, cons the first consolidated guide, and we, we uh, review that uh, annually. And we also produce the, the guide to planning panels. So we have the two guides, uh, which are updated annually, um, as well as the editorial comment, which comes out usually about once a month, just depends on how many decisions or noteworthy panel reports are being handed down. So and Mark, you, do you have other people that help with the editorials, or is that all you? No, we have a uh, editorial committee. Mm -hmm. So. Um, 
what we do is basically do a, a daily look at uh, at Ostley at um, you know the VCAT and, and panel uh, uh, parts of the website. Uh, we make a bit of a list, um, and uh, and then we'll s I'll send it around and uh, basically ask for contributions, um, and certainly the various uh, editorial. Uh, committee members have particular interests. We have uh, legal members um, as well as uh, planning members. Um, so uh, Joseph Monaghan at uh, Holding Redlick, uh, Jane Sharp, who's a, a planning barrister, uh, and Stephen Rowley, who I understand you have interviewed before. So, um, so it's um, so we're able to just bounce off uh, our ideas and suggestions and what have you. Um, and I, I need to mention that uh, we do have uh, very good admin support from Chris. She's, she's been working with me for 14 years and uh, she does um, all the administration associated with the, uh, with the service uh, as well as uh, all the graphic design and promotions and so forth. So mm. I'll uh, with that. I've got a favour, Mark. I, uh, 2019 wasn't a good year for me at the tribunal. I got smashed on a number of occasions. Advertising signs? Please don't report any of my... <laughs> <laughs> but it's try, like trying to... They think that you're trying to sell cigarettes or something when you're trying to get a sign up. <laughs> but look, please don't report my cases, all right? <laughs> okay, so, just for you. So the advantage of the VPRs is that it's a curated guide in this huge data that we've got. Yeah. It's a, it's a go-to instruction thing. Well, there's 4,000 VCAT decisions per year. That's, that's a lot. Well, between three and 4,000. There's about 200 panel reports, and even though that's not as many, obviously, um, yeah, most reports are a couple of hundred pages. Yeah, uh, to say, So trying to distill you know, the major <coughs> issues uh, mm. coming out of panel reports, that's the, one of the key objectives of, um, of our editorial comment. So, Mark, obviously um, VPRs only covers Victoria primarily because planning, you know, in Victoria is very state-specific. Have you ever considered looking at other other states or that's just not really in the remit of Yeah, no, VPRs? I had a bit of a look around. Um, and uh, what I've noticed, uh, particularly in New South Wales, um, which is the Land and Environment Court, um, and there's also a planning-type tribunal in Queensland, both both those uh, jurisdictions uh, provide, um, well, as well as providing the case to Osley, have their own uh, websites, and what they do is they have a PDF of all decisions, and they have uh, keywords uh, and key cases. But what they don't do is consolidate the issues like we've done. Uh, so I've had some preliminary discussions um, recently with Queensland to see if they are interested in looking at doing something similar. Terrific. Because, uh, Mark, uh, I was speaking to Simon Molesworth, who is a very prominent Victorian QC, and then he went up north yeah. to uh, New South Wales, and he's now on the Land and Environment Court. Yeah. So I think he's the only person to sit. He was on the tribunal down in Victoria. But he was hearing a, he was telling me he was hearing a case on heritage matters in Sydney. And he said to the, the advocates, look, you've just given me New South Wales examples. What about examples from other states? Because the principles of this, you know, the same issues come up. And he said they were dumbfounded. Yeah. They, the, the, uh, the planning law or planning practice or planning approach stopped at the state borders. Yeah. And so he stood the matter down. He said, come back tomorrow. I want to hear other examples. And he was complaining that there's this, there should be a more federal approach in a sense of borrowing from different states and the transmission of ideas. Yeah, no, look, we are, each state has its own jurisdiction, uh, you know, own legislation, um, you know, the di different rights of appeal uh, in, the, in the various states as well. Um, so that's, that's, that's why you get uh, unique um, principles to each state. I, I think there is a case perhaps to, to look at um, sh you know, sharing of uh, principles and ideas. Um, I, I know that just in terms of planning systems, uh, that in the, again showing my age, but uh, in the early 90s with the microeconomic reforms of um, the Hawke and, and Keating governments, uh, they were keen to, uh, for states to have common planning systems. And in fact, the, the very first, you know, VicCode um, came out of that. Uh, but Victoria was the only state that really pursued the reforms, uh, which was taken up by the Kennett government. 
Um, and, and really that's how we got the Victoria planning provisions. Um, most, most of the states uh, don't have a, a robust state framework like, like Victoria does. Um, and to my way of thinking, in fact, I was just helping a friend recently uh, get uh, an approval in, in Sydney and uh, it's more localised. There's um, obviously state elements of their system, but it's, it is more localised and certainly more complex. I'm doing one too, Jess, and it's, I've been asked to provide an ATSIC uh, statement to prove that the people, the owner's consent was actually from the owners. And in Victoria, you just have to say, well, we've notified the owners. Yeah. And of course, you, you sign that declaration, you're in big trouble if you don't. But in New South Wales, you've got to get the owners to sign the paper. But you've also now been asked to get an ATSIC certificate. And this is like a very big company, but uh, very complicated. Yes. You have to have a declaration about the costs of the application, and it all has to be itemised, including consultants' costs. It's very convoluted compared to what we're used to. It's like... I don't know, English and French, I don't know. <laughs> what, what, what do you think, Mark, do you think? Yeah, well, look, my, my friend contacted me because uh, he had so much trouble uh, navigating the system. Um, and he was also seeking uh, some quotes from a planning consultant, planning consultants up there, but saying it's so expensive. And I said, well, it's expensive because it's a, a complex system. So yeah, look, I think there is a case, I mean, there's been you know, reforms um, yeah, with the, with the Victoria planning reports, it was it was a fundamental reform of our planning system, and there's been ongoing reform since then. And I'm sure all jurisdictions are always looking at reforming their, their systems. But to me, there's probably a case to look at you know some general principles that could be shared in terms of the planning systems across the various jurisdictions. Because if you look at the, like a childcare centre, the issues for a childcare centre in a suburban area in Parramatta are probably similar to West Perth. Actually, there's no West Perth. Sorry, uh, East. <laughs> What, so, West Island so, or uh, South Africa? Yeah, so, so East Perth, so I'm ignorant uh, for our WA listeners. But so there, there, there is some common ground, I think. Definitely. Yeah. So, Mark, I wanted to ask about your career in local government. Mm -hmm. So you started your career in local government? Yeah, look, Whereabouts? I've had a, um, a largely local government career. Um, so I've worked in uh, various municipalities uh, in metropolitan Melbourne. So yeah, my first job was at Knox. Um, I've been at Moreland three times. Uh, the first time it was, it was Brunswick, so it was before amalgamations. I spent uh, about five years uh, at the city of Ballarat. Um, so yeah, largely local government and, um, and uh, you know, worked my way up into management positions where I had responsibility for both strategic and statutory planning. I uh, also spent um, about five years at the MAV, the Municipal Association of Victoria, which is the, low, the umbrella. What was your role at the MAV? And just explain what they are. Who yeah, they are. so the MAV, um, I, I guess they're a, uh, an advocacy uh, group for local government, probably more so than anything else, but they're also a resource. Um, they do a lot of professional de development with, um, with local government in, in all the various uh, parts of uh, councils, with engineering or social policy or environmental policy, what have you. Um, they, there is an elected board, uh, it's drawn up from councillors and then there is an uh, uh, you know, executive team and, and staff. Uh, they, they do play an important role, um, particularly in the advocacy space. Uh, and what was your role there? My role was as a policy officer uh, concentrating on, on planning and building issues, uh, but, but particularly planning. So uh, for example, when uh, uh, you know, the state government was proposing changes to legislation or changes to policy, uh, they would use the MOV uh, as, as a resource to, to, to get feedback um, on, on those sorts of initiatives. So that was a, a, key, a key factor. I, I guess what we, what we tried to do is also drive the agenda a little bit as well. Um, and this is uh, after I left, but uh, just uh, for example with um, the smart planning uh, reforms. I mean, the MAV put together a very good submission. Uh, so I guess was uh, advocating for some more substantial reforms that, that were actually being proposed. So, uh, you know, I guess they're trying to set the agenda a little bit uh, as well. And so what's the biggest misunderstanding you think people have about local government? Yes, um, 
Look, I think most there's a there's a perception out there that um, you know local government should uh, just stick to its knitting in terms of roads, rats, and rubbish. Um, they're they're inefficient. Uh, they're corrupt. Um, unfortunately, the ICAC hearings at the moment uh, build a perception um, about local government, which is you know far from the truth. Uh, you know, my my experience with local government is that uh, starting off with the councillors. Um, you know, by and large, they are fully committed uh, to their communities. They know their communities well. If you, uh, I've been, if you've been following the the bushfire, bushfires um, coverage on on throughout the various media elements, you, you, I've noticed that a lot of the uh, media outlets go to the local mayor because the local mayor knows the community, knows the area. Uh, local government plays an important coordinating role at that local level. So, you know, I, I, unfortunately, I think councils are undervalued um, a lot of the time. I, I think, I mean, I enjoyed my time in local government as well, Mark, and I, more recently, I've done a stint for seven and a half years in a country mm. shire looking after the planning there. And what impressed me was the real commitment of most staff members to their jobs, yeah, yeah. particularly in smaller places, because it's held together with a string and a bit of tape, yeah. essentially. Yeah. But Look, I think councils, I mean, they deliver a lot uh, at very good value. Um, yeah, obviously, you can always improve efficiency in the way you do things, but you know, I've done, done a little bit of work at state government level as well. Um, and, uh, you know, there's so many different layers in a state government bureaucracy. I mean, you can do a, a brief to the minister and it goes through seven steps and it might, a brief might start off at step seven and go up four steps and then it's reviewed and comes down a couple and then it's reviewed again and goes up. So there's a lot of, lot of layers. Local government doesn't have as many layers. Um, and I really do feel that, you know, that with local government staff, you know, working with the community on a daily basis... They're at the pointy the, end, aren't they? they? They're at the pointy end. They understand their communities. So, you know, I think local government is a critical, a critical planner and service deliverer, if that's a word, deliverer. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and then later you became a panel member. Can you briefly describe to our listeners what... Well, that in, was involved with being a panel member yeah. for well, Panels Victoria. Yeah, so as, as we were saying before, um, um, panels uh, mainly hear uh, changes to the planning scheme, but they also may consider major projects. For example, when uh, development applications are called in by the minister, the minister will, will often in that situation uh, establish an advisory committee. Or eyes a developer want to rezone some land. I've put in a planning scheme amendment that goes to exhibition, to yep. submissions, and it ends up before the panel. Correct, yep. And, and as well, uh, panels uh, Victoria have been dealing with the environmental effects statements. So, uh, for, you know, for example, the northeast uh, link is probably the most uh, recent uh, example. So that's what planning panels does, and it's and drawn up from... Um, uh, permanent staff um, and a large sessional pool as well with uh, people from different uh, ex experiences uh, but qualifications I guess uh, different professions um, and and individuals uh, appointed to hear uh, you know matters plans get amendments or or es statements or call in applications I think the important the important thing to understand about planning panels is that their their main role is to consider submissions it's it's explicit in the act that the the fundamental role of, of a planning panel is to consider submissions um, to an amendment or or as a result of the notification of an application they they, they don't have a role in considering first principles Th that's interesting because a lot of things get through uh, amendments and be going to the planning scheme but the panel a lot of the time is not considering the merits of the policy justification unless there's submissions yes uh, well they need to consider those merits in the context of the submissions uh, the submissions yeah so a lot so, of bad policy i think gets through because the the panels aren't given that job to scrutinize unless people raise criticism mm. that that stuff will get through yeah quite yeah quite potentially yeah so that's the fundamental role um, of a panel member, and, and of course, is, it is to conduct public hearings as well. 
Um, and that's a, a very important element because uh, it is uh, often the first time that people um, come across um, a public hearing in terms of a, a determining a, a planning issue. So it could be the first time they've ever appeared before a panel. So a panel has to get that balance right between formality to making sure there's a, a fair hearing, that everyone gets a, the right to be heard, um, and, uh, and that you know, the, the panel is free from bias. That's uh, of fundamental importance uh, to uh, a panel hearing. Um, so it's, it's a matter of getting that formality right, but also making sure that people feel comfortable enough to be able to make submissions, ask questions of expert witnesses, things of that nature. And then I guess the third element of a panel member is to, to write the panel report. Um, and it is important that uh, panel reports uh, are coherent, they're clear, but importantly that uh, you know, the conclusions um, and recommendations uh, are justified. They're, they're, you can see the logic and why a panel came to a conclusion and recommended something. Mm. So, Mark, as well, um, in Victoria, only councils or the minister may actually initiate planning scheme amendments. Um, do you think there's actually any merit in broadening that right to commence that process? May that unlock additional policy, provide adaptability and new approaches? My experience has been that, um, uh, that in terms of policy, um, that... Uh, a number of councils have been able to push the envelope uh, through um, planning scheme amendments. They have to seek the, the minister's support, um, but some examples are ESD policy. So there was a number of councils that got together that more than led that um, initiative about five or six, five or six years ago. Um, banded together with a number of other councils and, and there was an advisory committee established with terms of reference um, and that committee supported um, the initiative and one of the reasons why councils, those councils were seeking that change is because they felt that there was you know, a lack of attention of, of ESD objectives in the planning in the planning centre. Well there's, there's enough objectives I guess but there's not enough tools um, and this is really about introducing tools to But couldn't the that. same thing, you know, the question just asked, just asked is can't that process be unlocked so that there's more diversity of approach and, more, and different angles and that the gatekeepers at the moment stop new things coming through? Well, they can. Um, again, my, my experience has been even when, when um, private developers have approached council to do something, that the council will seriously look at whether it will provide basically a community benefit. Um, but that, that often comes from a very political, very, you know, listening to a, maybe a minority. So what might be a broader thing for the outsiders who yeah. will benefit from this don't even get a look in because yeah. the council, if they veto that amendment, that's it. It doesn't well, go any further. That's right. But the minister has the right to initiate an How amendment as well. How often does he do that, Mark? Seriously. How often does he do that? Well, there's Never. plenty of examples over the years. Maybe well, it's less in the more recent times, but... Uh. <laughs> but, but again, it's, it's about the, the design of the system to allow as many good inputs, isn't it? But, and I think this goes yeah. back to what we were actually just talking about, um, well, Peter and I were talking about earlier today, was this idea of testing new ideas. And I think, you know, testing new ideas is not probably something that's politically um, palatable in a, lot of, in a lot of ways, but where you get developers wanting to do something different you know, you do need to push the envelope. It's not. It's not sometimes something that council will um, be on board with at, at a preliminary yeah. sense. So, yeah. is there a way that we can, I guess, start to introduce those new just ideas? A, just agree with us, Mark. Would you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I do yes. recall that um, the Planning and Environment Act did, for a little while, um, have a a provision that did allow basically private, private developers to initiate rezonings or amendments. Um, but that was uh, 
subsequently removed. From I, I, I don't know necessarily that, I, you know, I guess opening the flood floodgates is necessarily a good thing. I think I'm sort of talking more about having an independent body or an independent panel that could consider something, particularly in an instance where you do get roadblocks, particularly at a councillor um, political level, yeah. whether or not that's something that has been thought about in the past. Yeah, well... My, my, my view is that um, you know, most councils and most ministers are interested in good ideas and, and policy initiatives and, and they will entertain uh, something that if they think it's, it's good. Uh, I'd, I'd agree that you don't want to open the floodgates to just to get constant rezonings to test, test the, the envelope. You know. um, I think a lot of resources could be wasted in... in, in I'd, in initiatives being pursued that don't really result in a good community benefit. It's a waste of time. No, Mark. I think, <laughs> I think you're being too... I think, you know, from my point of view, I think you shouldn't stop... No one's talking about floodgates, but the gatekeepers are motivated by different reasons and not always altruistic reasons. And I think you'll get a much better system if you open it up. But anyway... You don't have to agree with us. Okay. All right. <laughs> now, now, sitting, on, sitting on cases of panels, yeah. what did, I mean, you were there six years? Yes. What did you learn about the art of the pitch? And you know what I'm referring yeah. to, the art of the pitch. In terms of uh, advocates? Narrative or whatever. Yeah. yeah. To me, um, the best advocates would introduce their case um, very clearly. They, they spell out the case they're going to make. And then they would go through their submission in a very logical sequence. And, um, and then at the conclusion of the hearing with the right of reply, you know, summarise uh, the, you know, the, the case. So the out of the pitch is, is really about putting the case logically um, and succinctly, not going on too long. And you know, my, my experience is that you know, most, most of the advocates uh, that appeared before me were pretty good at it. I'm taking notes, Jess, to improve okay. my record. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what about some of the common mistakes by advocates, do you think? Um, on some occasions, some advocates were a bit unprepared. Um, so, uh, Are you writing that down, Pete? <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm pre- un- unprepared. <laughs> <laughs> and look, I can understand that sometimes I'd have... A number of cases going on at the one time, um, so yeah, it's important that but all parties before a panel are, are prepared. Um, perhaps with cross-examination, sometimes that uh, some advocates on some occasions would go into a lot of detail about one particular matter that may not have been that pertinent to the case, and then you know, go down that burrow with you know 30 questions and go nowhere, and then try another borough hmm. and um, yeah I guess that was a bit frustrating at times um, look obviously the advocates trying to do the best by their client uh, that's what's motivating them um, but sometimes it could be a bit of a waste of time and now that you're a planning consultant what has surprised you most uh, the amount of um, time and effort it takes in preparing uh, the quarterly BAS statements. <laughs> Getting all the insurance to give, insurances together. Now, look, nothing's really surprised me that much. Um, I mean, I think uh, there's you know, opportunities out there for consultants who want to specialise in you know, policy-type work um, or in advocacy-type work or even... Uh, assisting councils with uh, workloads. So um, there's plenty of opportunities out there. Um, you know, perhaps one, you know, one of the issues I found is that uh, when I've done consulting work for councils, that you submit, you know, there's always deadlines, but they're never met. And it's not always the fault of the consultant because the consultant will, say, prepare the, uh, the draft policy or whatever. Um, and it goes, and they say, well, we'll get back to you next week. Well, four weeks later, you know, you hear from them. So, um, yeah, so there's quite often blowouts in time frames. Uh, but nothing's really surprised me that much. 
Thank you to Song Bowden Planners, who offer excellent personalised service. Call Dave Song or Dan Bowden through details on our website. Also, we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. Planners have long been considered amenity police and agents that try to get better community outcomes from development proposals. What do you think will assist planners to be able to do this sometimes very complex task? Yeah, I think when I started in planning, um, we were the amenity police in the sense that um, most of our assessments, as working in local government, were about amenity implications. So, you know, loss of sunlight and impact on car parking and that sort of stuff, amount of open space. Um, There was a big focus on amenity when I started over 30 years ago. Um, The the planning framework um, deals with a lot more now than just amenity. So even in my time, uh, just again looking at a residential context, that uh, issues of heritage um, became more prominent issues of uh, impact on streetscapes became more important, naval character became more important. And I think it's because there was um, an increase in the expectation in the community that we are creating a sense of place, so we need to create a sense of place. Um, So our planning needs to be more sophisticated than just dealing with amenity. So that's that's how I think uh, planning has evolved to some extent, but but it's evolved a whole lot more as well because um, you know, planning does deal with a lot of, in, of environmental risks now. So you know, when I started, there were, weren't anything such as the bushfire management overlay or environmental significance overlay. Um, and also you know, valuing the environment as well. So again, landscape uh, significance overlay um, wasn't in existence when I started. So there's... There's this role that planning plays in terms of uh, uh, a valuing what's important in a in a physical environment, but also protecting uh, people and and property. Some of that, um, Jess and Mark, I think, is generated from within the planning community of mm. how to do things better, yep. and some of it is responding to community expectations. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so it's a it's a mix of the two, isn't I, it? I think it is. I think it is. And uh, of course, uh, you know, we've got big picture issues now with uh, climate change, um, and uh, you know the the, the urban footprint. Um, big challenges for for planners, um, you know, to to create more sustainable environments. So, you know, for, for, so I think planning we we even though it was called planning, in, in when I started, it was it wasn't much planning forward planning. It was more about assessment. Now, to my way of thinking... Code-based, code-based code, assessment. Code-based, tick-the-box assessment. Mm. Knock out a, an assessment within two hours. Um. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> <laughs> so what are the big... So going back to those challenges, I guess, what, yeah. are, what are the challenges that the council that you're, you work for currently, the City of Wyndham, are facing in that regard? Yeah, so um, Wyndham is uh, in the, one of the growth areas of, of Melbourne, the southwest uh, growth area. Um, there's 94 babies born every week in Wyndham. Well, they're not actually born in Wyndham because we don't have the hospital, but uh, they live, they come, to, they come to live in Wyndham. So you can imagine um, just what that, what that implication is in terms of... Uh, school classes. Yeah, exactly. Um, the, uh, between four and 5,000 dwellings have been approved, or built, I should say, not approved, been built uh, per year. So that's um, 10,000 people and um, you know, another 5,000 cars. Um, so the big issue for a place like Wyndham is infrastructure. A lot of the community surveys that have been done, uh, I guess the biggest frustration for people is congestion. And it's congestion 
within the municipality uh, around Hoppers Crossing and, and uh, Werribee and those sorts, and Point Cook in particular. It's a, a big issue. But there's also congestion in terms of getting onto the freeway or trying to get on a, on a train. Um, you know, from Wyndham Vale in the morning, it's standing room only. Are there jobs out there, Mark? Not enough. Mm. Um, so, I mean, what we the last interview we've done was with Peter Seymour and Cam Alderson and talking about this concept of polycentric cities. Mm. Is, um, I guess, the, the centres that are being developed within the city of Wyndham, how are they contributing to this idea of the polycentric city in terms of providing employment and services for people yeah. within the municipality? Yes, yeah, so uh, you may recall that uh, in Wyndham uh, there is the e-website, the or the NEEC site, the National Innovation and Employment Cluster. So uh, a big, big parcels of land owned by the state government, um, and there was a uh, a proposal, um, a, a submission um, that uh, came to the state government about creating the Australian Australian Education City. Yeah, to my way of thinking, like creating the, the Monash of the West. Uh, unfortunately, that's, that's fallen over, but the opportunity is still there. Um, it, that, that site um, is located between two railway stations. Um, it's possible to have a, a spur line, perhaps, or light rail um, you know, to, to that site. Um, you know, I guess I'm, what I'd like to see is the, the government... Um, give that some priority. I mean, at the moment, there's priority been given to Fishman's Bend uh, and North Melbourne Macaulay uh, to grow, you know, the already very big CBD. But to my way of thinking, in terms of priority, um, the state government should be looking at EWEP because, you know, there's a, there'll be half a million people uh, living in the city of Wyndham alone uh, by 2040. And it's critical um, that there is the employment opportunity and people don't have to get on, onto the train or the freeway to access employment. So that's, that's the big challenge for a place like Wyndham. Mark, you went on a study, overseas study tour uh, a few years ago, I think. What was the benefit of the tour and what places most impressed you? Yeah, so this was the, uh, the V-Plus study tour of 2011. Um, I think people do them every year or every couple of years at least. And um, look, they're very good because uh, you go to places and you listen to people, um, whether it's planners, architects or, or politicians, um, about their initiatives. So the 2011 tour went to Singapore, London, uh, Manchester, Amsterdam and Barcelona. And uh, and in all and in each city that we visited, uh, and we had the the benefit of talking to architects, planners, uh, uh, people in in working in state authorities or regional authorities uh, about particular initiatives. So, um, for example, London it was before the Olympic Games, so and we did a site tour. Of the um, of the Olympic site and uh, and the Olympic Village, and they were really wanting to you know, design for legacy, so d design for the games, but leave a legacy. Um, and they've created a very fantastic mixed use uh, precinct um, in in that uh, area. But I guess in terms of uh, what impressed me the most was Singapore, in the sense that uh, it is a high density city, but it really sits in a landscaped environment and um, and you might want to hear this Peter but there's no big advertising signs around the place <laughs> that's the one problem with that that's one problem with Singapore I love Singapore Mark I was there recently I agree with you the greening of that city is yeah. outstanding it's it's outstanding and there are fantastic linkages by water or by by ground between you know, various you can destinations. You can basically go from the east coast to the west coast without crossing a road. Yep. Now. Yeah, it's fantastic. And, of course, the, their subway system uh, is is fantastic as well. So you think, in, in a sense, it's a futuristic city in, that, in the sense that it's, you know, almost high density, um, but good quality buildings, 
good separation between buildings, which is important with with uh, tall buildings. Great architecture. Good architecture, um, but yeah, the linkages um, are fantastic as well, and, and and the landscaping. So, and the interesting thing about Singapore is that they have a fifty year plan, and it's reviewed every five years. So when you think you know, fifty years, I think you can think more transformative. Uh, they're, they're thinking long term. How can we achieve what we need to achieve in the long term? And they have you know, five, five yearly and ten yearly reviews. So I think their system is also pretty good. You know, perhaps there's not there's not as much politics in um, in their planning system than, than we've got here. Well, they don't have that luxury. And Mark, over the years, what what have you changed your mind on? Uh, not a lot, actually, because <laughs> <laughs> I'm just stubborn and upset. No. Look, I haven't, I haven't really changed my mind on a lot of things, but I guess I've just um, just maybe changed my perspective on things and uh, a bit similar to what we were talking about before is that uh, you know, when I worked in, first I worked in planning, I was very much about just that assessment, short-term focus. Um, and uh, as time has gone on, I've I just really appreciated the opportunity to think longer term um, and, uh, and think, you know, what, what sort of place are we trying to create and how can we get there um so i guess i just broadened my horizons out a little bit from from when i first started in planning but i i, I know i got this question in advance and i'm thinking i don't know i have changed my mind on anything <laughs> <laughs> that's all right there's no right or wrong answers so if you had six months away from your normal work to undertake a research project what would it be on <laughs> <laughs> well in a sense so uh, I took six months off to uh, write up the the guide to planning appeals and guide to <laughs> planning panels, but um, I guess uh, I'd like to do a research project that could prove that with the existing footprint of Melbourne, that you could you know, triple the population and still create a fantastic city. Uh, the worst thing I think we could ever do well, is to increase the urban growth boundary, increase the urban footprint. There's lots of opportunity uh, to replan and redevelop large areas of Melbourne. And um, so it would be good to kind of do that data, to do that research to prove that that can be the case. Because I, I, I mean, regional cities are another alternative, um, but the fact of the matter is you can't really force people away from cities, in a major city like Melbourne. Um, it, it will happen by just from the growth uh, generally in, in the state, um, and each each of the regional cities kind of are growing within themselves anyway. But um, you, you can't force people. You shouldn't be able to force people to live in areas that they want to live in. If people want to live in Melbourne, well, let's make it good. Okay, now we're on to podcast extra, Jess. Mark, what have you been listening to, watching? What's caught your imagination lately? Yeah, I'm reading um, a book by, I think, Gary Linnell, uh, Buckley's Chance. Ah, William Buckley. William Buckley. One of my favourites. Yeah, fascinating. Mm. Absolutely fascinating. I mean, he served in the English Army in the, in the uh, French War. Um, you know, got convicted for stealing a handkerchief or something pretty petty. Um, and uh, took his opportunity not far from where I live now. Uh, to escape in the bush um, and you know, no doubt the, a lot of convicts weren't treated very well so I'm only about halfway through the book um, but it's just fascinating uh, just in terms of uh, how he um, became a member of uh, a local indigenous uh, community. Well he lived for 33 years with a local Aboriginal tribe. Correct. Without seeing a white person. Mm. I think, did you recommend this book another podcast, uh, I, I've, I I've read his, I've read the diary, uh, yeah. his sort of okay. notes, which yeah. was written in the 1850s or 60s. Yeah. But it's incredible analysis of Aboriginal society pre-contact. It is. It is. And it's all local. It's like. very local. Mm. Yep. So and you like your local history? You I like, like history? Lo- I do like, do like history. So Buckley's Cave um, is in uh, Port Lonsdale. Uh, so apparently where he did spend some time. There is a Buckley Trail around Geelong region. We should do it one day. Yeah. So all three of us, Jess, what do you think? Sounds now, great. what have you been listening to watching, Jess? Well, I've actually got more of an, an administrative recommendation today. 
Well, two actually. The first of which is Dashlane, which is a password keeper, which has just changed my life over the last couple of weeks. You know, every time you go to a website, you need a password. Yeah. This just automatically, I don't know how it works. It's a plugin that goes into Chrome and does all of your passwords for you. Can it be hacked? Apparently not. Oh, Apparently okay. it's very, very safe. It's one of the safest on the market. So shout out to Dashlane. Um, but the second is Trello, which is an online sort of, it's almost like a virtual list making tool. Um, but it's fantastic. Highly recommend that as well. So also changed my life. List. Yes, daily okay. lists. I've got lists for podcast recommendations, book recommendations, places to travel, uh, places to eat, you name it. I'm a massive list taker, though. I have a list for everything in my oh, life. Good on you, Jess. Does that, does that explain <laughs> a lot? That. Does that explain a lot? Yes, it does, Jess. Well, <laughs> what about you, Pete? Well, Jess, it's something I'm looking forward to very much, and that is I'm looking forward to seeing a movie called Stringy Bark. It's, it's a film made by two young filmmakers from Geelong who are at VCA, Victorian College of the Arts, and they wanted to write, they wanted to make a movie about the police, the ambush of police by Ned Kelly, the bush ranger, at Stringybark Creek. So what that is, they crowdsourced $15,000, $15,000, yes, nothing, to make a movie about this. They actually got 35000 and they made this one-hour film and apparently it's terrific. They use local, they use a lot of volunteers, but they made the film based on historical records from the police search party's point of view. And three out of the four got murdered by Ned Kelly. So I'm looking forward to that, the incredible effort of these young people, still not just, just graduated, I think, to make a terrific movie about local history for, for nothing. You know, 35000 Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, you know, yeah. as you know, barristers' fees are much more than that in one of the cases that you used to yeah. see here. I mean, daily, you know, daily fee. Yeah, daily fee. <laughs> so, so I'm so looking forward to seeing. I love this local initiative and kids can just do stuff. Yeah, that's no, fantastic. And it shows what you can do with modern technology. Um, anyway, I'm so excited. But... Thank you so much, Mark. It's no, thanks been, for you've having been a me. terrific thanks, guest on PX61. And um, listeners, thanks for listening to us in your busy lives. And we urge you to listen to the Urban Broadcast Collective, which we're part of, which is a wonderful group of curated podcasts from around Australia. And also, How to Build a City, www.howtobuildacity.com, which is another partnership we now have with Peter Seema and Cameron Alderson. Terrific. Thanks again, Mark, and thanks, Jess. Thank you.